Good morning. Good morning. So we're reading Genesis 34 this morning, the whole chapter. <clears throat> now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to dying of the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and, this land, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price, price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. <clears throat> they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. <clears throat> so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, 
they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? May God add wisdom to this word. This is the uh, place in the Bible my daughter got to before I decided maybe she should start in the New Testament. <laughs> let's, let's pray. Father, we want to lift up to you, especially those who can't be with us here this morning. Those who, whether through illness or fear, or of any other circumstance, are unable to gather with your people, Lord, we pray for them. We ask that as your spirit is with us, you would be with them also, and they would know the affection of your people. Help us to care for one another, and to be concerned for the burdens of each other. I pray that you would cause your church to walk as your body, that we would be your hands and feet, that we would care for those situations we can care for. Lord, many things are beyond us. We feel so out of control. Help us to trust that you are in control. You are causing your will to come about perfectly through every wicked deed. And Lord, I pray that you would glorify your name in us. And Lord, this morning as we gather here, I pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. May we come to your perfect word, as offensive as we may find it, and learn what it is your spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't think it is sensationalism to say that our world is experiencing a crisis right now. Uh, current events are driving people further and further into division as we are polarized ideologically according to the lies that we are inundated with as the world speaks its mother tongue. And we have people in our country now that are very, very angry. Angry over mandates, angry at people who keep the mandates, anger over people who don't keep the mandates. And like many of you, I have some political opinions I'd like to share. But my opinions are not even dog food compared to the nourishing meal of God's word that we come to receive this morning. So whatever our point of view, whatever our political leaning, the word of God is pertinent and timely to our situation and leads us in all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so I was not at all initially looking forward to broaching the sensitive subject material in this chapter. This, even as I picked Genesis, I'm like, oh man, I'm going to do Genesis 34. And, and it's the rules in our church, I'm not allowed to skip it, just so you know. I didn't, I didn't pick. I was actually joyfully surprised by the message of God's word I have the privilege of sharing with you this morning. 
And so in this, the 34th chapter, one of the chief themes we've seen throughout Genesis, and it's here as well, and I just want to hit that at the start, is that God is working all things for the good of those he has called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. And while Romans 8.28 says it as succinctly and clearly as possible, this has been one of the chief themes throughout Genesis, that God is working all the interworkings, even the evil that is committed against and by God's chosen people, will eventually serve this purpose of good. And this theme comes to its clearest expression in Genesis in chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And this is the theme that is actually the most prominent in our chapter, although we won't spend a lot more time on it, because what ultimately happens is God uses... Uh, this personal tragedy and this serious threat to the covenant promises and turns it out to work according to the providence of God. All the reprehensible and inexcusable behavior of, of every actor in the narrative works out to accomplish something that was in harmony with God's will. Uh, that is the horrific behavior of the sons to avenge their family honor results in assimilation with the Canaanite tribes being avoided. So this is what is actually very serious here, is there's this opportunity, a great um, temptation to assimilate with the Canaanite tribes, and, and it's avoided, not because God caused evil, but because the evil of these men uh, brought about God's will. We often think of, oh sorry, Walton writes, these are not my words now, we often think of providence as a fortunate turn of events. But here, and in subsequent chapters, providence more often than not operates in the context of sinful behavior. If God can only work through godly behavior, there is little he can do in our sinful world. He does not, of course, guide Jacob's sons to act as they do. His sovereignty in these cases is demonstrated not by overriding the free, wicked choices that people make, but by dovetailing those acts of wickedness into his own plan. Now, God's sovereignty in using every human choice to accomplish His own will does not nullify their guilt. It doesn't nullify the terrible pain and suffering such wickedness in, invariably produces. Sin has consequences, as we will see. Let's read those first four verses again. We're going to go verse by verse this morning. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land and when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Our, our passage this morning begins with a horrifying act. With all of its humiliation and violence. Uh, it's recorded in a mere five words because the purpose of its record here is primarily to set the stage for the more violent act to follow. And so Dinah is not developed as a character in this story. The, the narrator tells nothing of Dinah's reactions, feelings, or if she was eventually won over by Shechem's smooth talk. She's merely used as the object of Shechem's passion and a bargaining chip for Hamor's ambition. 
She is the source of moral outrage for her brothers and of passive indifference to her father. It's not that Dinah is denied personhood by some sort of cultural snub. Other times in the Bible, even victims like this are are developed. But she is a young woman of at very most 16 years of age, at, at absolute most. And the morality of her actions are not in question here by the author. And so he quickly moves past Dinah into all the people making these horrible choices. And so, although the narrative sweeps very quickly past these first few, for few, huh, first few verses to get to the main point, I don't want to overlook the cautionary tale here. Jacob's family had been warned by God about the wickedness of the Canaanite tribes. But Jacob, once again, is passive in his leadership role in this chapter. First of all, he had settled in Shechem, which was only supposed to be a pit stop on his way to Bethel, where he could complete his vow to the Lord. And while they were living in Shechem, Dinah, who as far as we know was Jacob's only daughter, was understandably curious about the way the Canaanite women lived. But it was this lifestyle of the Canaanites that Israel had been warned against. It was improper and imprudent that Jacob would let his daughter go up unchaperoned into the pagan social scene. Like his cousin Lot, Jacob lived too intimately with the pagan city. He failed to model appropriate distancing from the Canaanites, and he he failed to ensure the protection of his daughter. Despite her developing confidence and independence, Jacob was responsible to protect his daughter from worldly influence, no matter how inconvenient that might be. So, with parents today, unprotected, Dinah is taken as prey. Shechem's actions are first described with the same sequence of words as the sexually unrestrained angels in Genesis 6-2, and also of Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3-6. He saw her, and he took her, just as Eve saw and took and ate. The three verbs of Shechem's brutality, he seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her are then followed with three verbs of tender affection. His soul was drawn to Dinah. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Now, this behavior after the fact is not included, so we don't think Shechem is such a bad guy after all. But it is to show the complete inversion of God's commandment for marriage that was present and acceptable among the Canaanites. And so this is exactly put in there like this to show this reversal. Genesis 2.24, God commands, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Shechem, in the Canaanite way, had utterly reversed this. He forced intimacy before the marriage, a clear violation of all moral law. And Shechem took both to be his, to demand, rudely ordering his father, get me this girl. Verses 5 to 7 then show us three different reactions to the rape of Dinah. Genesis 34, 5. 
Now Jacob heard that he had now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the sons were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Jacob is passive. Later, we will find out that it is out of fear. He knows of the wickedness that is happening around him, and he fails to act in any meaningful way. He actually won't speak up until the very end of the chapter where it is to chastise his sons. The proper response to this wickedness is outrage. And it is seen in the sons, but is totally lacking in the city of Shechem. In sharp contrast with the sons, the Hivites do not appear at all disturbed by the rape. It, uh, instead, they see it as an occasion for intermarriage and for financial gain. Uh, Shechem's act of perversion is an opportunity for cooperation. It's worth taking some time to contemplate verse 7. Because it describes the appropriate feelings of those who love Dinah and recognize the magnitude of the crime. It represents the righteous anger that God's people should feel at this moment, at every malicious intent and injustice we see perpetrated by the wicked today. The brothers are first indignant, which is only elsewhere used in the Bible for God's own reaction to human wickedness. It can also be translated grieved, deeply grieved. It is entirely appropriate that we are deeply grieved by the wickedness of our world. They're also very angry because of the outrageous thing Shechem had done. And this term outrageous or, or disgraceful, sometimes it's translated, is an expression of serious misconduct that threatens the very fabric of society. In fact, any adultery was considered to be disgraceful or outrageous. All ancient civilizations held adultery to be a capital sin. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, it was a capital law, sometimes even punishable by death, because it was a sin that was against the society. It breaks down the very fabric of society. For society's own self-protection, such atrocities can never be tolerated or left unpunished. Otherwise, it would lead to a total collapse of civilization. And so this is what they've labeled Shechem's sin as. This is an outrageous thing, a society-destroying sin. Anger, because the wicked threaten the very fabric of civil society, is entirely appropriate. And so Jacob's response is one of passivity. The response of the sons of Jacob put the crime in its true light. Such a crime was a defilement, a godless act that pollutes the entire community. It ought not be done. The Canaanite response was a proposal of intermarriage and cooperation, verse 8. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell in it. 
trade in it and get property. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now later we find out that Dinah is still being kept in the home of Shechem while they are um, trying to trade for her here. This was a attempting offer to the sojourning family. Possessing the land was ultimately the goal for Jacob's family. Here it is offered on a platter. And in addition, Shechem offers a blank check for a bride price with an additional gift to make his bribe irresistible. In the end, it was possibly too generous for the full brothers of Dinah, Simeon, and Levi. Uh, verse 31, they, they, this attempt to pay her price only signified to the brothers that he was treating their sister like a prostitute. Intermarriage, as I said, is the ultimate threat in this passage. The command of God forbade intermarriage with the Canaanites for his chosen people. And this is something that greatly concerned both Abraham and Isaac when it came to their children. Now, I always need to remind us that this was not an issue of race or ethnicity, but of religious purity. Which is what makes the response of Jacob's son in the next section all the more vile. Canaanites, who embraced a godly lifestyle and worldview, were to be welcomed in Israel, such as Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And males could be welcomed into the community of faith with the sign of circumcision. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamar deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing which he do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city." And commentators have called this the treacherous agreement. The sons of Jacob are deceiving Shechem and Hamar, who in turn give a very different description of the agreement to their own villagers than what was arranged with the brothers. And so the deceivers are being deceived. Uh, Shechem and Hamar are trying to deceive the brothers. They're also deceiving their own townsfolk. The brothers are trying to deceive them. 
they, they actually, when they go back to their townspeople, they don't state their true motive in unifying with Jacob's people, and they don't tell the townspeople that they had agreed to let them have property as well. Like other political leaders in the world, they make their own lusts appear to be in the interests of the community. The deceit of Jacob's son is at the same time both ironic and totally sacrilegious. They propose circumcision, which, if you don't know, I have to tell you, is the ritual removal of the male foreskin. And this becomes a condition for the intermarriage, which uh, serves to punish all who went out of the gate of his city, which is every able-bodied man. So this is an idiom for anyone able to get up and fight. And so every man able to go out of the gate of his city... Every able-bodied man was punished here for the crime perpetrated against their sister in this ironic fashion. But this is also the first explicit instance of the covenant sign being separated from its true meaning and purpose. Circumcision was a sign of faith, a sign of trusting in God, a sign of being set apart and being pure. The Hivites had no intention to embrace Israel's theology, which was symbolized by circumcision. It was only a means to a financial advantage without conversion. The act is emptied of all its theological significance. Without a change of heart, this act would not in itself make them members of the covenant. And the Israelites, well, the Israelites have no intention of welcoming the Hivite men as brothers in the faith. Verse 25. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. On the third day when they were sore, Uh, could be something of an understatement. Uh, The third day after circumcision is the day where the pain would be most intense. And in addition, there would be a fever result as a result of this operation, uh, which would make self-defense pretty much impossible. And so while they find all the Hivites laying on their backs in pain, these brothers come in, and all of the, the... Hivite defenses have been disabled, and they murder them all. They held the entire city responsible for the defilement of Dinah, probably because of the way they saw them take the incident as a matter of course without any outrage, seeing it only as a means to introduce intermarriage. Levi and Simeon, the full brothers of Dinah, do the killing. Then all the brothers together plundered the city. 
And so the defilement of one woman led to the death of many men and the horror of captivity for many women and children. So the rape of Dinah becomes the rape of Shechem, the city. It becomes clear that the brothers valued their religious act no more than Shechem did. Like those throughout history who have fought wars and committed atrocities under the banner of the cross, their most precious symbol of faith has now become a tool of inhumanity. Their godly indignance and righteous anger has now been unleashed in sinful, unbridled, and rash revenge. Finally, Jacob speaks, verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Finally, finally, Jacob rebukes his sons, but his grievance is less than honorable. He is concerned about himself, not about Dinah's humiliation. His concerns are tactical and strategic rather than ethical, a display of fear and not of obedient faith. So the narrator appropriately uses his old label now, Jacob, and not his new name, Israel. He scolds his sons for being reckless and causing serious danger for the family in the area. By God's grace, this will cause Jacob to move to the place of God's determination. But once again, Jacob moves out of fear. Jacob is also rebuked here. He lacks the appropriate moral outrage. Simeon and Levi refer to Dinah as our sister now, and not your daughter as she was labeled when the story began. Their contrasting reactions to the rape of the city match their contrasting reactions to the rape of Dinah. Jacob shows no moral outrage about his daughter. The sons then justify their slaughter as just punishment. And so Simeon and Levi seem to get the last word here. And and if they did, this passage would read very differently. Jewish commentators often praise Simeon and Levi for their zeal in protecting the purity of Israel at all costs. I know when I read this, they're the the champions, they're the good guys. I mean, I'm angry. Of course they go in and wipe those losers out. Philo speaks of Simeon and Levi as the champions who stand ready to repel such profane and impure ways of thinking. But Simeon and Levi do not get the last word. Though he is passive here, at the end of his life, Jacob will explain why the birthright and blessing of the firstborn will pass them by in favor of Judah, from whom will come both King David and his anointed heir, Jesus Christ. Genesis 49, 5-7, Jacob blesses his sons, Simeon and Levi instead get a curse. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. 
For in their anger they killed men. In their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Not only were these brothers passed over for the kingship after Reuben, who was removed for different reasons, we'll see in the next chapter, but the tribe of Levi was not given an inheritance at all in the land of Canaan, but instead his tribe was scattered through Israel in service to the other tribes, according to this curse. Simeon temporarily obtained an inheritance, but it was scattered and all within the boundaries of the tribe of Judah. And so it was eventually subsumed by Judah and and ceased to be its own separate tribe. So these are, Simeon's one of the first tribes to disappear, and Levi never has an inheritance in the land. He is scattered. Also telling is Joshua chapter 9, where another group of Hivites, the Gibeonites, deceived Joshua and the elders of Israel into making a similar covenant with them, pretending to be from a far-off country. Now, I don't have time to go into this story, but in detail, hopefully some of you remember it. But the Gibeonites tricked them by pretending to be from far away, and they made a covenant with them. And though the deception only ran in one direction this time, Joshua, because he feared God, refused to break his covenant with the Canaanite tribe. And they were integrated into Israel. Joshua 9, 19 to 20. We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And so instead of tricking them with this false covenant, Joshua, who was tricked, heeds the covenant because he fears God. Interestingly, later, King Saul tried to exterminate the Gibeonites, 2 Samuel 21.1. And so the Lord commanded King David to make it right with them, for which David handed over seven sons of Saul to be executed. So the, this keeps on coming up. These Hivites that are make, trying to make covenants with Israel keep on coming up through the Old Testament. Now, back in Genesis, though, Although Jacob answers his sons far later, it makes the message of this passage clear. The son's instinct for justice was correct, and they had the correct emotional response to the evil perpetrated upon their family. But their methods were ruthless and excessive, taking revenge into their own hands. So Paul, in Romans 12, 19, quotes the law in Deuteronomy 32, 35, when he reminds us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But because of their unbridled passion, a whole group of people were slaughtered. Worse than that, they dangled the covenant before the Canaanites to deceive them. And so we have two inappropriate ways to respond to evil. Jacob and his sons, the appeaser and the avengers. One moved by fear, the others by fury. Jacob was passive. 
indifferent to the wickedness perpetrated upon his family. He offers no response or appropriate reaction. And then when Jacob fails to lead appropriately, his sons respond with revenge, which in the hands of mere humans is always returning evil for evil. There is no restitution of honor that is possible through vengeance and violence. Shechem's crime surely called for justice. And there is a correct response to protect the abused and the oppressed. Verse 17 probably contains the correct response. We will take our daughter, by whatever means I might add, and we will go. Our Lord commanded us, Matthew 5, 43 to 45, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to, sh- to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Many today have failed to exhibit the proper emotional response to evil. One of the detrimental effects of of movie and television is that we can become desensitized to wrongdoing and fail to appropriately respond. Think even of adultery, which is this civilization destroying sin, and, and it becomes normalized to us. Now, I'm not saying all movies and TV is bad, but I'm just saying look at how we are being desensitized. We should boldly identify wrongdoing Trusting that God will keep us from lasting harm. It is only appropriate that Christians are indignant, deeply mourning, and righteously angry about evil and oppression in our world, especially when children are harmed. Don't get used to it. Don't get over it. Don't give in to the lie. The powers of this world would see us passively let children be talked into self-mutilating gender surgeries and harmful and exploitative sexual behaviors. They would see us endorse the euthanization of the mentally ill, the murder of infants and the elderly. They will gleefully take any personal advantage at the expense of others. We must be incensed. Don't get over it. Don't get used to it. Don't begin to believe the lie. But we must not lash out. We cannot return evil for evil. Evil in the Bible is to disadvantage others for our own gain. And To do righteousness is to disadvantage ourselves to the benefit of others. And so we we must have a thoughtful discourse on how we may bring blessing to all. Not how we can return disadvantage for disadvantage. How we can harm in response to harm. We as believers are always commanded to love our enemies not to give evil for evil. 
Part of it is recognizing who our enemy is. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And so if the enemy in your mind is a politician or a party or a protest or a movement, you do not have the appropriate enemy in mind. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We think if our enemies are defeated, our life will get better. That's true if we have the right enemy in mind, the enemy which Christ has defeated once and for all, who only awaits his eternal judgment. In the meantime, we are commanded to be a blessing to all. I want to leave us with 1 Peter 3, 8 to 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." Church, I have prayed about how we are to respond as a diverse group to all of these very anger-inducing events. I mean, I don't need a show of hands, but I mean, we've all experienced some anger in the last few years, I can imagine. How are, how are we going to respond as Christians? And here's, I believe, the answer. In an unlikely text... Not the text I wanted to preach on, but the text that God in His sovereignty brought to us this morning. We are to bless. We are not to revile in response to reviling. You know, we have people saying horrible things right now. There's horrible things on flags being flown in Ottawa, and there's horrible things being said by the news media about the people waving flags that say horrible things. Neither of these are a Christian response. And so whatever our political leaning, whether we're more upset about loss of personal freedoms or more upset about people not keeping mandates, we have the same response. And in this way, we can walk in unity as a church. We are called to have one mind in Christ, not all the same opinion, but the one mind in Christ is our response to evil. And so when evil is done to us, when our rights are trampled, when someone makes us do something we don't want to do, our response is not evil for evil. 
And when we are reviled, when someone says something bad about our party or about our political leaning or about our province, we don't have to revile in return. In fact, we are forbidden it by our Lord. So I have to repent because there's this guy I don't like very much. They make flags about him. And that is a completely unchristian response. It is not out of the heart of Christ that we would revile someone no matter what they've done. On the contrary, we are told, bless, for this, for to this you were called. So church, I want to encourage you, as we interact with those with very different opinions, those who, who I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how to talk about the different sides without making it sound political, but you know who I'm talking about. As we interact with people that have diverse views, let us Determined together to live in obedience to our Lord, we will bless both our neighbor and our enemy. We will love, we will pray for them. This is the unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and humility. Let's pray. Father, this is nothing of my own nature. There is nothing in Josh that wants to give blessing for evil and to refuse to revile in return. I want to lash out. And Lord, I thank you for a passage that expresses to us the right emotional response that we should deeply desire justice. And we're allowed to talk about that We're allowed to say that we want justice, and we're allowed to talk about how unjust things are, and we're allowed to point out wickedness where it lies, but our goal is always to bless, to speak blessing, to speak in love, and Lord, to trust you that you will bring ultimate justice. What we've been asked to do by your word this morning is impossible for us. We always, in ourselves, react in one of two ways. We turn off our brains. We become passive. What happens will happen. What can we do? Or we get fired up and start to do things without thought of who it will harm. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us one mind in Christ as the Spirit of Christ transforms us and leads us in our day-to-day walk. Do this so that Christ will be glorified and not shamed among us, we pray. Amen.